not everybody always has an opportunity to learn it from a Torah perspective inside. And, you know, with all the terrible things that have been going on in Israel, over the last year, the last two years, you know, as Jews, we feel like we wish there's something that could be done. And you keep hearing on the news the political analyses. We just get to introduce you. Oh, I'm Alana. So we hear we hear a lot of analyses from a political perspective, like if only Netanyahu would make the right move, everything could be resolved. If only Hezbollah or Fatah or you know the Arabs, the the Palestinians would finally come up with the right solution, this could all be resolved. It hasn't been resolved for quite a long stretch of time. And we almost feel a little bit like, what's going to happen with all this? And why is this conflict between Jews and Arabs something that just keeps incessantly repeating itself over and over again? It doesn't seem to be a solution that anybody's able to really come up with and come to. So we know from a Jewish perspective, everything that happens in the physical world down here really has much deeper roots spiritually in things that are occurring either from a Torah perspective, within the Torah, or on a spiritual level in the, in the upper realms. So if we go back and look inside the Torah, we can kind of look and see if there's any information we have way back from 3,300 years ago about these two nations, Jews and Arabs, and about the relationship that started between them back at the beginning of time. Now we know that the conflict always seems to be over one topic, which is the land of Israel, right? They want that little piece of land, and we keep claiming that that little piece of land really is ours. And if you look through the map, it's really amazing that this little strip of land means so much. I mean, I don't have my map with me today, but the whole Israel is smaller than the state of Texas, right? If you look at the countries around, you have Lebanon up here, Arab country. You have Syria, Arab country. You have Jordan on the right. You have Syria <coughs> down here. You have Saudi Arabia up here. And the size of any one of these countries individually is triple, quadruple the size of that little tiny strip of Israel. If you look at all of them put together, the amount of land that they have all around it is, is enormous. The question is, though, for some reason they feel, and we feel, that that little strip of land is very important to have. So I wanted to look together tonight at what information we have in the Torah about that little tiny piece of land and why it is that both nations seem to make this claim that this land is ours. If you enjoy history, you can get like a lot of historical information tonight about Judaism and, and the land of Israel. The first time this little piece of land is mentioned is in a treaty that's actually being made between two parties over that piece of land. That treaty was made 3,700 years ago, 3,700 years ago. We're going to read the treaty inside tonight, and as we read it, I'm going to ask you to try to analyze, as a lawyer would, 
I saw her perk up on that. <laughs> um, three questions about the treaty. First of all, who are the parties to which this treaty applies? I have to warn you, I'm not really like a lecturer, I'm a classroom teacher. So like, I love my career, I always work with this. Someone will, will enact everything else. Who are the parties who are making this treaty between whom and whom? Number two, when does this treaty apply? During what time period? Number three, what are the conditions to be part of this treaty? What do each side in this, in which each party in this treaty has to commit to, to be part of this treaty too? The name of this treaty called Hebrew the Brit Bain Hakatarin. A Brit is a treaty, and it was made between the pieces. And we won't go into the details right now what the pieces were, but this is God speaking to Abraham, to Abraham. Let's look at it inside. Ready to copy your page. Page one. Anybody not get one? We're good? Um, this is from Bereshit, the 17th chapter, Pasuk Zion, verse 7. So, just so you don't have to only hear my voice, somebody who enjoys doing a little bit of reading. Any volunteers? Thank you. Mark. And I will establish my covenant between me and between you and between your seed after you throughout their generations as an everlasting covenant to be to you for God and to your seed after you. Okay, so who are the parties in this treaty? We have God, Shem, and Abraham. Are they the only parties? And the generations after. And the generations after. So it's him plus his descendants. Good. Now, who are the children of Abraham? Who does he give birth to? Anybody? He has actually two kids. One is Yishmael. That's his oldest. And one is Yitzhak Isaac. Later on, he has, later in life, he has a number of other children too, but these are his like primary two children that he has. Now, does it specify in this treaty right now which children are part of this? Which descendants? Nope. It just says you and your seed after you. So it's, it seems whatever this treaty is going to be about, it's going to apply to every one of his kids. Good. So we have the part. When does it apply? Forever. Forever. So this is not just Abraham and Yitzhak and Ishmael. This is Abraham, Yitzhak, Ishmael, and throughout history, anybody who will come from Yitzhak and from Ishmael. Now we know that Yitzhak becomes the father of the Jewish people. Ishmael becomes the father of the Arab nation. So whatever this treaty is going to be about would seem to be applicable to Jews and to Arabs throughout history. And it says here, as an everlasting covenant, like, what, as long as the world is here, this will be applicable to both. Good. What are the conditions of this treaty? What does it say? What is it about? Pasuk Chet, verse 8. Marcy? 
And I will give you and your seed after you, the land of your sojourning, the entire land of Canaan, for an everlasting possession, and I will be to them for a God. Great. So what is God's commitment on his part? The land itself. And he's living at that time in the land of Israel. So Hashem is God is promising that this land of Israel will belong to you and to your descendants after you throughout. And the second thing is, what did you say? And his presence, like that he will always be. I will be to them for a God, his presence. Right? Okay? Good. I will be their God. Which means there's going to be some type of like special relationship, a special connection between me and you and your children. Now it's just interesting to notice that there are two world religions till today that are purely monotheistic, that believe in purely only one God. Those are Jews and Muslims. Christians believe in the Trinity which is this triple, right, Father, the Son, the Holy Ghost, and it's actually not a belief in a single unity, um, single God. Um, Buddhist, Taoist, Confucianists believe in, like, the eternity of universe, the eternity of nature. They don't even speak about creation as being a one God or anything, right? So the two descendants of Adam, who is the one who actually discovers and brings forth monotheism to the world, his children, the children of Yitzhak and the children of Ishmael, the Arabs, are the two nations that kind of carry on his legacy and keep that commitment to belief in one God. And God promises, I will be their God, meaning there will be some type of special relationship and connection there. So again, it's just interesting to see, like Arabs, you know, pray to God five times a day, very religiously. They refer to God as Allah. Allah is similar in... in uh, structure to Eloka, Elohim, which is the Jewish word. But it's the same God that we're believing that we're believing in. Okay. So that's God's commitment. But whenever you have a treaty, a treaty has two sides. I will do this and you will do that. Right? So the question is, what does Abraham have to do to be part of that treaty? Let's go to number ten. Yes. This is my covenant which you shall observe between me and between you and between your seed after you that every male among you be circumcised. Okay, so Abraham, what he had to do is circumcision, brit milah. Good, go on. And you shall circumcise the flesh of your foreskin, and it shall be as the sign of a covenant between me and between you. And at the age of eight days, every male shall be circumcised to you throughout your generations, one that is born in the house, or one that is purchased with money from any foreigner who is not of your seed. So, okay, so was there any other conditions for Abram? So the eighth day. Right, meaning it's bris mila, but it has to be done at age eight days. Okay, now Hashem, God doesn't even seem to explain the connection. But he definitely seems to make a connection here then between having the land of Israel, being their God, and having to do bris mila to be part of that treaty or of that covenant. Good? 
Let's just stop for a minute and make sure we know chronologically when this happens in the life of Abraham. Quick historical review, okay? Abraham is born in a country called Ur Kasdim. Ur Kasdim is Mesopotamia. From there, he moves to a country called Haran, which is nowadays Turkey. And then, when he's in Haran, God approaches him and says to him, Lech machamearsecha, go and leave your land, and I want you to move to the land of Israel. He is at that point 75 years old. And at that point, he still has no children at all. He only has one wife, his wife is Sarah, Sarah, and they have no children at all. Now, they've been waiting to have, try to have children for many, many years, and it's not going. Abraham hopes when he moves to Israel, like, now we're going to be at a different spiritual stature, status and level, maybe now we'll be merit having children. So he waits 10 years. And after 10 years, when he's 85, he still does not have any children. So then Sarah comes up with an idea. Since this isn't working, let's try taking a second wife, and maybe you'll be able to have children through her. And when he's 85, he marries Hagar. Hagar, who's an Egyptian princess, becomes pregnant almost immediately. And the next year, when Abraham is 86, she gives birth to Yishmael. And this becomes his first child. Now, anybody have any idea, when does this whole tree fit into the chronology? When he gets his prince. When which, Abraham gets his prince. Right, which is when. Did it happen earlier? So let's take a look together at the bottom of the page. Genesis 17. Um, tell me your name one more time. Bathe. Bathe, would you like, would you like to read? Sure. And Abraham was 99 years old when he was circumcised of the flesh of his divorce. Ah, so 86 when Ishmael is born. 99 is when he has this first so how old is Ishmael? Thirteen. Thirteen. Go on. And Ishmael, his son, was thirteen years old when he was circumcised of the flesh of his foreskin. On that very day, Abraham was circumcised, and so was Ishmael. So now Abraham gets Brismilah, and Ishmael does get Brismilah. Good. Would you say then, is Ishmael eligible to be part of this treaty? Uh, so he does do Brismila, but it's not done in the days. Good. Anybody argue, though, against that? But Abraham's not a baby. That's also 99, right? They're both doing it at the earliest possible time that they could do it. So technically, they really, and, and it's not so easy to do Brismila, to circumcise yourself at age 13. Like, that takes a certain amount of self-sacrifice to be able to do. So in terms of commitment, they're both doing it. And they're both doing it at the earliest time they possibly could. Where did Yitzchak come into the picture? When is he born? Let's flip the page. That page has side two. Um, that did you want to go on? And the Lord remembered Sarah. As he had said, and the Lord did to Sarah as he had spoken. And Sarah conceived and bore a son to Abraham in his old age of the time of which God had spoken to him. 
chosen people? Maybe. We actually find that later on in Chumash, which you don't have right here, Hashem specifies that after Yitzchak is born and makes positive choices to follow in Avraham's path, Hashem tells Avraham, your descendants will now be called only through Yitzchak, not through Yishmael. So even though when I made this promise, I made it and your son, who was there at the time, was really only Yishmael, 
after Yitzchak is born and Yishmael makes very alternative, different types of choices, and Yitzchak makes other ones, Hashem says, now I'm qualifying. This does not apply across the board to everybody. But, but it's true. Human choice would, could have a very powerful effect. And if we'll get to it tonight, there's actually a section in the mystical writings in the Zohar which speaks about how much does this bridge of Yishmael still affect what's happening nowadays. So I hope, I hope we'll get to it. Any questions till, till here? Well, what we're doing. Great. Okay. So, do we have an eraser? Or maybe even just a, a tissue that she's While she's getting it, I just want to show you also two lines in the Zohar. Um, the Zohar, again, is not uh, halacha, it's not Polish, it's the mystical writing, but it speaks there about, thank you so much, about like the spiritual cause and effect of different mitzvot that we do and how they impact the world. If you look right onto that line where it says Zohar Parshat Mishpatim, everyone has it? Um, Ivana, would you like to? Sure. Zechariah said, and the merit of the Jewish people circumcising, their enemies are subdued beneath them, and they inherit their territory. There we go. And it says that there is a specific connection between doing Brit Milah and somehow really being able to overcome our enemies and hold on to that territory of the land of Israel. So what I, what's just interesting to notice already till here is, any time we go to a Brit Milah of a baby boy, or God willing, everybody should have an opportunity to do one for their own child, aside from the fact that this baby is now entering into the Jewish people and having that sign of their connection to Hashem and to God on them, that mitzvah is actually helping the Jewish people hold on to the land of Israel. More than any treaties and deals between Netanyahu and between Fatah and anybody else, specifically that spiritual merit of Greek Mila is so powerful that that's what gives us really the hold on the land. So, Avraham does Greek Mila, as we saw. He does it on himself. And he does it on his son, Yitzchak. Yitzchak's son is who? Yaakov, he gets a brick from his father. Yaakov has how many sons? Twelve sons. The twelve tribes. They all obviously get brick also, right? After the twelve tribes, what's the next period in Jewish history? Say it again. Slavery in Mitzrayim in Egypt for 210 years. Now what's interesting here is that during that 210 years of slavery, Jews actually stopped, stopped doing with One group stayed consistent on it, and that was the tribe of Levim. Levim would like often really kept a certain level of like spiritual commitment and dedication even when the Jewish people became weak. But because of like the assimilation and the, the oppression of the slavery, Jews got so pulled down by the Egyptian culture around them, Jews did stop stop doing Brit Milah at this point. Now, a Jew who is born Jewish but doesn't get Brit Milah, a male, is he still considered a Jew? Yes, 
Absolutely, right? So he can like still keep Shabbos, he can still keep kosher, right? he can do all, all the Jewish things. There's actually only one mitzvah in the Torah that a person cannot do if they or their fa- family members do not have brit milah. It's a mitzvah that we don't even keep nowadays because we don't have the Beit HaMikdash for temple, but it was one of the specific sacrifices. Anybody want to know? No, we're trying to take a guess. Karban? Pesach. The um, Pesach sacrifice could only be done if that person had a brick mila. Now, here they are, at the end of 210 years, ready to leave Egypt, and they have the mitzvah for the first time of bringing the Pesach sacrifice. The only problem is you have a whole bunch of males who don't have brick mila, so they can't do it. So Hashem tells Moshe, before you leave, gather all the males together and do a mass brick mila to all the males who don't have one. So you have like these 10-year-olds, 50-year-olds, 80-year-olds, like everyone's getting together. And Moshe himself does this mass brick mila on the Jews. And then they do the Karban Pesach. Now, if you remember, when they do the Karban Pesach, they have to take actually the blood from the sacrifice and they have to put it up on their doorposts. And that becomes like the sign during the plague of the firstborn when God is killing the Egyptians, don't enter into this house and the Jewish firstborns don't get killed by that blood. What was the blood up on the doorpost? Two blood. The blood from the Pesach sacrifice and the blood of the Greek blood that they had just done. So this is like their sign or their commitment to like, God, I have just really done an act of self-sacrifice because of my commitment to you. Um, I have taken the, the sheep, which was actually the idol. It was a form of idolatry in Egypt that they used to serve the sheep. I have destroyed that form of idolatry. I have committed myself through, mass, through this mass and in the, in the merit of these two mitzvot that the Jewish people do, this is actually what gets, gives them the merit to be able to leave Israel. Marcy, I'm looking at your faces. No, that not bother you. Okay, good. So they leave Mitzrayim, they leave Egypt, and now everybody has Brit Mila. Good. What's the next period in Jewish history? The desert. For how long? 40 years in the desert. And at the end of the 40 years in the desert, then they go into Israel for the first time as a nation. Very good question. We're getting there in about three minutes. Good. So now they're going to enter into the land of Israel. The leader who's leading them is Yehoshua, Joshua. And they're not just going to like walk in and they're going to say, oh, here, you want the land? No problem. Here it is, right? They have to actually go fight a war to be able to get this land. But this isn't a war that they're like wanting to do on their end. God tells them, it's time for the Jewish people to come into this land. Offer peace. If they're willing to leave, fine. If they don't want to leave, then you have to battle to get this land because this is your land. Um, the number of nations who are living in that land of Israel at this point are seven nations. Yevusi, Prizi, Girgashi, Chiti, Chivi, seven different nations. So this war is not a very good war in terms of like ratio and strategic possibilities. It's one Jewish soldier to every seven Israeli, Palestinian soldiers who are in the land at that time. 
So what Yehoshua, what Joshua has to be doing now is like training them, preparing them, strategy, battles, get, let, let's get everything going, which he does. He really does do a lot of uh, maneuvers. Question, are these people who are going to fight this war very like militarily um, experienced? These are people who have been wandering in a desert for like the last 40 years, right? These aren't people who like have been fighting wars and battles. Their parents, their grandparents, were slaves in Egypt over the last 210 years. So these are not people who are like really ready for a war. They've prepared for all the battles, but there's one last thing right before they leave to battle that Yehoshua does with his soldiers, which is like the last thing you would expect an army captain to do right before going into a war. We take a look with me at the bottom of page two. This is from the book of Yehoshua, where it says number two at that time. <coughs> Katie, do you want to read? Sure. Yeah, just to give you a good one. I knew there were two Katies in the room. <laughs> I figured somebody's going to answer. <laughs> you want to take it, Katie? At that time, the Lord said to Joshua, Make for yourself sharp knives and circumcise again the children of Israel for the second, the second time. Uh, so here is the army captain, Yoshua. And what does he have to do? Circumcise everybody. Now that implies that they really didn't do it. Is there anything within that verse that seems a little puzzling to you? The second time? How do you give somebody a circumcision a second time around? Like if you already cut off the piece of skin, it's off, right? What does this mean? So all the commentaries jump in here and they ask, like, what does this mean to do it a second time? And they say, it doesn't mean to do a second circumcision on each person. It means this is the second time in history that we need to do another mass brick milah. Just like when you left Egypt, Moshe had to do that mass brick milah again seems there was a whole generation of males who did not do Brit Milah during that 40 years in the desert, and now Yeshua has to do it on them. Why weren't they doing it during that time in the desert? Let's go on a little more, Katie. And Joshua made for himself sharp knives and circumcised the children of Israel at the hill of the foreskin. It's a funny name, like they named the place the hill of the foreskin. It sounds like not so aesthetically beautiful, right? Um, this was just considered like a major <coughs> tribute to the Jewish males at this point, that all of them, you know, 50, 60, 70 year old males were all ready to go ahead and do this. You know, you may know there are many uh, Russian Jews who, w when they were living in Russia, were not able to do circumcision. And you have men in their, in their 40s, 50s, and 60s who, when they come over here, take on doing Greek Milan. And it's not a simple thing. So this would consider like a major medal of, of honor almost to like, look at, at all these Jews who, who went ahead and did it. And this is the reason why Joshua did circumcise. All the people that came out of Egypt that were males, all the men of war, had died in the desert, um, had, had died in the desert, by the way, after they came out of Egypt. So I'm stopping you. That means this first generation who had Mesopotamia all died during this 40 years in the desert. Why did they die again, anybody? Because of the faith? Not the ego, but that one, that one was... They almost were destroyed, but they, the time that they get the, the uh, decree that they can't, they can't go into the land of Israel is by the Chesav, 
Okay, the Rasmus right? Because they didn't want the land of Israel, they were complaining about the land of Israel. Therefore, Hashem said, "You won't go in. You'll have to stay and die in the desert for the next forty years." So that first generation that had the Brit will die during the forty years in the desert. Now you have a new generation that was born during that forty years. What happens with them? A little more. For all the people that came out were circumcised, but all the people that were not that, that were born in the wilderness, by the way, as they came forth out of Egypt, they had not circumcised. Did it say we or why not? No, it doesn't seem to. Can anybody think what might be a reason why in forty years in the desert people would not do circumcision? So Thank God. I'm assuming here, is there anybody here who has circumcised any, uh, any child yet? No. Okay. So basically, circumcision is a major form of surgery. Medically, it is not a smart idea to do major surgery on somebody and then go on a major trip traveling somewhere, right? Usually don't take somebody out of a hospital for major surgery and say, we're flying off to Israel tomorrow. Now, here they are traveling in a desert for 40 years. The commentary even explains that during those 40 years in the desert, there was a natural wind that used to blow in the world that would bring people healing that blew in most locations, but didn't blow in desert areas. So it was considered um, medically or therapeutically a real danger to give your child a major operation, not have the healing wind, and they're moving from place to place. They're going on major travels. This is a danger for the child. Does somebody have to endanger their life to keep a mitzvah? No, except for three major mitzvahs, which are so big that a person would even have to give their lives for that. Idol worship, murder, and adultery. Right? Those are considered so spiritually damaging that it's better for a person to even lose their physical life than to do those types of acts. But for any other mitzvah, a person doesn't have to risk their life. So here, to take your baby, do a major surgery on them, and then go traveling through the desert the next day was considered a medical danger. And therefore, in halacha, they were not liable for doing it. They never get punished for not doing it. They're never held responsible for not doing it. There was one group that did consistently do Britney Latin, even in the desert. That was? Ladies, here they were again. They said, like, whatever Hashem wants to happen, if God wants my child to live, to live with the Brit Milah, without Brit Milah, I'm going to go ahead and do it anyway, and they did it. But the rest of the Jewish people did not. They're never blamed for doing that at all. Would you think now would be a good logical time to start doing Brit Milah? Now you're about to enter battle. You're going to take all your soldiers and now disable them or handicap them by doing major surgery on them right before battle, this would be the least likely time you would want to do Brit Milah. Therefore, logically, they would not have done this. But that's why God comes to Yoshua in these verses. She read number two, number three. At that time, the Lord said to Yoshua, make for yourself sharp knives and circumcise again the children of Israel the second time. I'm giving you an outright command. Do it now, even though logically you wouldn't think so. Why is it so important for you to do it now? Because now you're going to fight for this land of Israel. I promised Abraham way back when that his descendants will get this land. Now, did it actually ever happen? Did Abraham himself ever own the land of Israel? 
Nope. Did Yitzchak get the land? Never. Nope. Did Yaakov? No, he goes down into Egypt. Then the 12 sons end up in Egypt for 12, for 210 years. Over the next 210 years, nobody's living in the land of Israel. Then they're in the desert for 40 years. This is actually the first time since this promise was made to Abraham that now it's going to be actualized. God says, don't think this war is going to be a natural war altogether. This is one against seven. If you think that the probability of winning in terms of military strength is going to do it, this is not where it's at. But if you're going to have the spiritual merit to be able to get that land of Israel, the condition that I promised Abraham was Brit Milah. If all your soldiers don't have a Brit Milah, you will not have the spiritual strength to be able to overcome and fight this war. So Yahushua takes all the soldiers, does a mass Brit Milah, just like Moshe Rabbeinu did, and then they go and fight the war. And amazingly enough, not only do they win, but they win with zero casualties, which is really beyond nature, but the whole war with Jericho and the walls come tumbling down, the whole war is really beyond, beyond nature. So why am I bringing in all this history? Just to realize again, we don't realize the power of certain mitzvot that we do. And, and I often find it interesting, many Jews who are not necessarily observant of many other mitzvot, you know, Jews who may not be keeping Shabbos, may not be keeping kosher, but when it comes to Brit Milah, that is one mitzvah that Jews throughout generations have really held on to with a tremendous strength. And it's not even a strength that can even be always explained from a logical, intellectual perspective. Like, why are you doing this mitzvah? Is this mitzvah like the easiest, most pleasant mitzvah you can think of in Judaism? Like, I don't know, I can think of other mitzvahs that I think are just a lot easier to do, like lighting a Hanukkah maneuver. But for some reason, like, it got passed down that, like, if you want to stay connected and you want to be part of the Jewish people, this mitzvah is vital. And every Jew who's still doing the Brit Milah on their child is really giving the Jewish people the strength to be able to live in the land, hold on to the land, and really overcome our enemies. Any questions, please? It's just kind of interesting because they didn't fulfill the second part that they were eight days old at the, at the time when they won the war. You know what I mean? That is true. Meaning when they, when they were doing this mass you know, they really did not do this age of days. Which means Hashem only expects the ability of what a person could do at that time. Right. So Hashem doesn't hold Yishmael responsible for doing it at age 13, and he doesn't hold Abraham responsible for doing it at age 99 either. But does he hold some? Sorry. Yeah. Does he hold the, his Yishmael's kids responsible because they're 13? So the like question the is only right. The question is, is there a choice or is it beyond those capabilities? Okay. So in the desert, the reason that they're not held responsible for doing it earlier is because they really technically, medically could not. Okay. And therefore there's no responsibility. But the moment there is a possibility to do it and you choose not to, then it becomes in a different uh, category. But it's not like it's easier to do a vermula at age 13. So they're doing it, the Muslims, it seems, are doing it because that's what they think is what's being told of them. It's harder to do a Bermuda at age 13. They're following what Ishmael did, right? So, like, it doesn't sound like they think it's a choice, but if it was a choice, like, you choose eight days, I would think, because it's less painful, easier recovery, it's, it's less intrusive, right? Right. Like, where do they interpret that, that it should be at age 13, just because like their father did it, but wasn't that 
the first time that they knew about birthing law? Like, so I don't. I mean, again, they're not going by the Bible, right? They're not going by the text of the Old Testament. So therefore, they're not like reading this and saying, well, it has to be done in eight days. Right. They're doing it by tradition. By tradition, our ancestor did it at that age. We're following him in that way. And I'm almost like glad that they just don't know. Right. It's almost like, like do they think that by doing it at age 13 that they have the land because of that? Like, that they're, do they, like, oh, that's an do they make question. the argument, like, no, it's our land, we're doing Brittany Law, when Ishmael did Brittany Law, that's when you're supposed to do it. That's a great question. I don't know myself they see spiritual connections right, between right. Rikmila and having a land. Right. They definitely do claim though, that the land of, is theirs also because they're part of the descendants of Abraham Avinu. Right. right. If, if you've been to Marat HaMachpelah in Hebron, the Arabs make, put their mosque in Marat HaMachpelah right. where Abraham is buried because they really hold that he's their ancestor and they're trying to hold on to his legacy also. You know also that in the Quran, they have the whole story of the Akedah, uh-huh. but with Yishmael instead of Yitzhak. Right, right, right. Yeah, right. Okay, got it. Yeah. Okay, so it's not like an interpretation of the text, why they're choosing age 13. They're not following. It's very clear that it's eight days. Right, not right. Different. But again, they get by the Quran. They're not, right, they're right, not following. Right. Uh, okay, do we have, should we, should we stop now? Should we leave the other part for next time? Should we? Yeah? Yeah. Okay. Do you want to do one more, one more piece of it? Yeah, some patience. Maybe start with the other question. So the only question is, is this still relevant for nowadays? Like, it's very nice back then to see how it's affected with Hashem and Abraham and back in the time of Yahushua that they needed to have this. But is this still really impacting the politics of today? So I want to show you just a very fascinating prediction or prophecy that we have in one of our books of prophets that speaks about what's going to happen in the future of the Jewish people. Before I read the future, not from now, but the future at the time that this was written. Before we read inside, I would just like you to think for a minute about, let's say there was somebody making a prediction. What would you say would be a necessary criteria, criterion, for a prediction to be really something that you would say is like, whoa, this is godly. This is not just written by some human being. <coughs> Let me give you one or two examples, and you tell me what you think. Um, let's say I would make the prediction sometime over the next half a year, there will be a war in the Middle East. And let's say it happens. Would you say, whoa, Ivy Kalazan, she is a prophetess. What's the problem? Number one, it would have to be specific. Also, it's probably going to happen, not probably going to happen, but that would be so shocking. Great. Good. So number one, you know, if you give just the general predictions, you know, like when you go to those Chinese restaurants and then they get the fortune cookies and it says like, you're going to meet someone new this week, and you do, and you say, well, they're prophets. No, obviously not. All they're have doing is they're giving you a very general prediction of most people in life. For a prediction to be really awesome or amazing, it would have to be very specific and detailed in terms of what it says. If they would say, 
sometime over the next 24 hours. You will meet somebody new. He will be male and, you know, with very specific details, and it happens, then you might, you might leave. So. Number two, it would have to be something that would be unexpected, based on natural patterns. So the fact that I say that there will be a war in the Middle East, based on all the things that are happening now, I think most of us would make similar predictions too. So it has to be something really unusual. And number three, when would the prediction have to be written down? Prior to when the event actually happens. So we are going to read a prediction that was written in one of our prophets called Zechariah. Zechariah lived about 2,500 years ago, at the time of the beginning of the Second Temple period. Now, before we read the predictions, I want to see what we would say would be expected based on natural patterns in his time. 2,500 years ago, first of all, what was the Jewish community like at that point? Um, were most Jews at that point observant of religion? Were most Jews like very assimilated into foreign culture? What did the Jewish community look like back then? Very observant. As a matter of fact, this is all the Jews are living in the land of Israel. This is the beginning of the Second Temple period. They had built the Second Temple. There was no dispersion of Jews throughout the whole world. And anybody who was living in Israel, like, everybody kept mitzvot. Like, you, if you were Jewish, you kept Shabbos, you kept kosher. The concept of, like, you can be a Jew, but you don't necessarily have to keep mitzvot is something that started probably about 200 years ago with the Renaissance Reformation, right? The openness of, like, you can, you can identify culturally without necessarily observing it, right? So he's living in a time period where, like, everybody is observant. So imagine that we would have a time machine right here. We would all go in as a group into this time machine. I'm still gonna give this class. You turn the dial to the right, you're up one year to 2016. You turn it to the left, you're back in 2014. We'll move into the time machine and we're all gonna travel back even 800 years, not 2,500, 800 years. Jews at that time are all observant and all keeping mitzvot. And I make a prediction, I tell you, in the future, there's going to be major changes throughout the whole world. And there's going to be something called a renaissance and a reformation. In the outer world, people are going to start seeing the Catholic Church as being very limiting and very confining. And they're going to want a certain openness and enlightenment. They're going to welcome different people with different cultures. And they're even going to welcome Jews to become integrated into their society. At the beginning, Jews are going to go to their universities, work in their workplaces, but will still be observant of Torah and of Judaism. But there will reach a time in the future of the Jewish nation that most Jews will stop being observant of Torah. If I would have made that prediction 800 years ago, would that be something that you'd say, oh, that, that makes sense, that's expected? Even if, like, there was, if a Jew wanted to leave Judaism or not be observant, they could um, convert out, they could become a Hellenist, but there was no such thing like being Jewish but not knowing Torah, right? Let's say I would add one detail. I would say a majority of the Jewish nation is actually going to stop knowing Torah and they will stop observing mitzvah. But there's one mitzvah that Jews will still hold on to. That will be circumcision, brit milah. 
And that's the one you, you would think logically makes the most sense, the Jews will hold on to best. Right? Light a Hanukkah menorah once a year, have a beautiful party all together, right? Do a brit milah and your kid. I mean, I know, you know, many religious moms who have a hard time walking in during the time of the brit milah itself because it's hard to watch your kid, you know, going through the surgery, going through the pain, right? That doesn't seem like something that, of all things logically, Jews would necessarily hold on to most of all. Well, that prediction was not made 800 years ago. It was made 2,500 years ago in the book of Zechariah. We're going to read the verse inside. When you read it inside, it's going to be very metaphoric, very symbolic, and we're going to have to try to decipher what that metaphor is all about. So we're doing now page three, right on top, Zechariah 9-11. Oh, boy, 9-11. Give me a of that. <laughs> Um, okay. Who hasn't read yet? Olivia. Olivia, thank you. Sure. Um, you also, Jewish people, with the blood of your bread, I will send back your imprisoned ones from the pit with no water. Let me just put that up on the board. Knowledgeable in Judaism, 
I will stop being connected to that water of Torah. You know what's going to happen during that time period? I will send back your imprisonment. Meaning, Jews will come back home to the land of Israel. Even though they will have been in diaspora for many, many years, there will be a time the Jews will return back to the land. It will specifically be during a time when Jews are not connected to Torah and to Judaism overall. So what will be the merit, spiritually, that will get them back to the land then? You also, with the blood of your bris, I will send back your imprisoned ones. Because Jews will still be doing bris milah, that energy and that mitzvah will give them the privilege of returning to the land and living there. Now, from the time that that second temple was destroyed, when was the next time period the Jews as a nation went back to the land of Israel? Only the last, so at least since 1948, only the last 70 years. The people who went back and built the land in 1948, were they generally religious Jews or non-religious Jews? None. None. So Zachary is saying, I will send back, I will bring them back to the land. It'll be at a time when youth will not be observant of Torah and Mitzvot, but you can bet that every one of those people who built the land had Brit Milah. They weren't doing keeping Mitzvot, but they were doing Brit Milah, and it's saying that will be the schut, the merit that will get them back. Now you might say, you know what, Ayyazam, this is very nice, but I'm reading this 2020 hindsight into the words of Zechariah. Who says that that's what he really meant when he said a pit with no water that there won't be Torah? Maybe that's my interpretation. So I want to end by just showing you the Ramban, who is Nachmanides' interpretation on this verse in Zechariah. Now, Nachmanides' Ramban lived 900 years ago. We said that that prediction would have been weird to make, right, even 800 years ago, and he wrote this 900 years ago, right underneath Olivia. Way prior to when it happened, 
and this is all written out in the Torah about our time period and what would be happening in our time. If you're really curious for your own self about what, when, or how, will, oh, you don't have the whole Zohar on the bottom. I only gave you part of it. Okay. The Zohar does, does discuss this problem of Yishmael doing Brit Milah and us doing Brit Milah, and will it really last forever, this struggle and this debate between the two? It's, it's, it's over our time, so I don't want to keep you, but I think, I think we can just come out of here at least renewing for ourselves. I, I find it so interesting. There are only two positive mitzvot. Positive mitzvot. The Torah says, if a Jew does not keep these two, they're cutting themselves off spiritually from the Jewish nation. They're still a Jew, but they've lost the spiritual connection. You know what those two are? Mithnila and Karban Pesach, the Pesach Sacrament. And he finds the Jews nowadays, again, who are traditional, who don't keep most other mitzvot, they may not keep Shabbos, they may not keep Shavuot, but Pesach, like the Passover Seder, they're there. And if you ask them, like, why? If you're not keeping all the other stuff, like you're not keeping Sukkot, you're not keep, why are you there for Pesach? And they won't be able to tell you, because it says in the Torah that if you don't want to get spiritually cut off, they don't know what it says. But somehow it got passed down like the Jewish tradition. If you still want to stay connected to God and to spirituality of the Torah, be there Pesach, be with Milah, those two are like unnegotiable. They're really there. And Jews who are really holding on to that are, are really doing still a, a very good thing. Any, any questions or any comments? Do they really still hear people always say that they're not keeping fully paid off, like they'll do theaters and they'll always be like, no, my mind needs bread. Like they still have like some connection to it, but like I don't even, like, they don't even think they know why. They do. But they like are like yeah. into keeping that part of it. So it's yeah. very interesting. So I think, I, I think what happened really was like four generations yeah. ago, it kind of got passed down in tradition, like keep this. And you find even like you know Russian Jews who are not able to keep most other things, they'll say like I remember that we used to bake matzos half of the time and we eat those matzos and it's like that this connection but it's really still there. Yeah, it's pretty amazing. It's all here. Yeah. Okay, sure. Okay, see your attention.